Well, good morning, friends. It's, good morning. It's great to be with you here in God's place. If we have not had an opportunity to say hello at any point, my name's Charlie Browning. I'm one of the pastors on our staff team here at Christ Church and primarily get to serve at our Butterfield campus. And so it's a unique pleasure then for me this morning to be here in this space with you all. And, and if you're newer or brand new to the life of our community here, I, I want to share two things with you, uh, say two things to you. The first is I just want to say how thrilled I am that you are here. Thrilled that you are here. And the second thing that I want to share with you is to catch you up a little bit about on the journey that we've been walking through as a church for the entirety of the fall. You see, we've been on a journey in this sermon series through the entire book of Exodus from start to finish. And we're titling this journey through the book of Exodus, Wild. And the reason it's called Wild is because if you read the book of Exodus, it is wild. And the reason it's called Wild is because if we reflect on our own lives, many of us would say that life is wild. And it's called Wild because through it all, God's grace and his goodness and his love to us is frankly wild. And so we pick up today in our journey through Exodus and this wild journey that we're on in Exodus chapter 20. So I'd invite you, if you have a Bible, to open it to Exodus chapter 20. The words will also be along, this, around, along the screen. But hear the words of Scripture starting in Exodus 20 verse 1. It says, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not uphold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet, and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. 
They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father God, we submit ourselves to your word this morning. We open our hearts to whatever it is that you have for us in this place. We pray that you would speak to us through your holy word today, giving us exactly what we need. Lord, we know and we trust that you sustain all things and that you're the one who brings order out of chaos. And we pray today that you might move us further toward participating in your kingdom work in this world. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, there's something that I think you need to know about me. Something that I'm not altogether too thrilled to share with you, but nonetheless something that is so true of me. That I have tended to be a relatively forgetful person over the course of my life. I've tried everything, to, everything I can conceive of to, to try to remedy this. I've tried every self-help book that, that exists. I've tried repeating things out loud when they're said. I've tried writing things down. I've tried repeating things in my own mind over and over again. And yet still, to this day, I am very poor at remembering things. It was so bad that when I was a kid, my dad used to joke. He would say, Charlie, if your head was not attached to you, I fear that you would forget it everywhere that you went. And I'm not totally sure that he was joking, and I definitely don't think he was altogether wrong. And that was, of course, then, and this is now, but now doesn't seem to be any better. Just the other day, the, the, our, our kids had a doctor's appointment for the first part of the day, so they were going to show up to school about halfway through the day. And my wife, Allie, she asked me, hey, could you call the school and tell them that the kids won't be there till about halfway through the day? I said, of course I will call the school. Three minutes later, guess who forgot to call the school? Me. Guess who had to deal with the school calling them because they had no idea where our children were? Allie. I continue to be a forgetful person. And don't even get me started on my inability to remember people's names. It's one of the worst possible traits that a pastor could have. I am horrible at it. The number of times that we find ourselves in a social situation where Allie has to lean over to me and whisper the person's name into my ear because she can just tell in that moment that I cannot remember their name. It happens all the time. And there's one specific instance that sort of lives in infamy in our family and friends that I still haven't quite gotten over to this day. When I was in college, a buddy of mine, our future best man in my wedding, we went to this event. It was a two-night event where we were going to mingle and get to know a lot of upperclassmen, 
some who, who were very influential, at least in the world of our school. And so we go to this event, and night one, I spend basically the entire evening with this one guy. I mean, we got to know each other so well. I heard all about his family, all about his plans for after school, what, what was holding him back, what he was excited about. We, we got to share common stories of things and commonalities in our life. We got to know each other very well. I went home that night, and we came back to night two, and I was insistent on making sure that this very influential upperclassman knew that I remembered him. So I walked right up to him and I go, Sam, buddy, good to see you again. I probably referred to him as Sam 12 times in the next three minutes of our conversation just to make sure that he knew that I remembered his name. Guess whose name was not Sam? <laughs> that guy. <laughs> my, my friend and just standing there sort of laughing so hard that he's almost crying, not interrupting the entire time, watching me just fail to remember. It's just been true of me. I can be a forgetful person. And while I, I, I sort of joke about that and share it in jest, I can imagine that if you're listening, you can either imagine yourself to be similar in that way, or you likely know somebody who is that way. But here's the thing that I think God knows to be true about all humans throughout all of human history at some level. That he knows to be true that we fundamentally are a forgetful people. We are a forgetful people. It's part of the reality of living in this broken world and in our humanity. I want to hold on to that idea for a second and come back to it. But returning to Exodus chapter 20, we're going to dig into the text this morning. But before we do so, I want to sort of zoom out and look at the book of Exodus as a whole. You see, because at a, at a very basic level, the book of Exodus is broken into two parts. Part one is Exodus 1 through 18. That's primarily focused on what God is doing for his people. And then you have this sort of pivot chapter in chapter 19 of Exodus. And then part two is Exodus 20 that we begin in today all the way through the end of the book in chapter 40. And Exodus 20 through 40 and part two are primarily talking about what God is then asking of his people. Exodus 1 through 19, what God has done for his people. And Exodus 20 through 40, what God is therefore asking his people in response. And we see here then at the beginning of Exodus 20 that, that the scripture sort of makes this transition into the second part of Exodus where God begins to ask something of his people and it does that in a way that, that clearly articulates for us exactly how God operates. You see, we see at the beginning of Exodus 20 that God operates in a way that he makes sure to help us realize that any relationship between him and us any relationship between God and humanity, it first starts with him. It first starts with what he does for us, the way that his grace moves in our life. That it's his love, his mercy, his grace that comes first in any relationship that he has with us. It's almost as if he's interested in sharing that the what comes before the why, or the what actually helps us understand the why. 
God also knows that we are human beings, and if you're like me, then you find yourself asking why all the time whenever something is asked of you. And that's what we do whenever God asks something of us. We constantly ask why. Why, God, does it have to be like this? Why are we bound to this set of ethical standards? Why does it have to look like this? Why did you set it up this way? Why, God, why? But God is very aware that we're going to be like this, and so he makes sure to share that the what comes before the why. The what helps us interpret the why. And so in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, God begins to showcase the what as a way of reminding his people what he has done for them because he knows what I just said a moment ago. He knows that we happen to be a very forgetful people. In Exodus 20, verse 2, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You see, for the first part of Exodus, God has been referring to himself over and over again when he's speaking to the Israelites, when he's speaking to Moses, even when he's speaking to Pharaoh. And time and time again in the first part of Exodus, he says, I am the Lord your God. And then in the second part of Exodus, if you read, he attaches something on the end of his own self-identification. It's like he adds a component to his name to remind a forgetful people what he has done for them. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. He knows that his people are forgetful. He knows that they've already forgotten what goodness he has done in their life to bring them out of Egypt out of their slavery and suffering and bondage into new possibilities. The Israelites have already totally forgotten. So he wants to remind them as if he's saying, before we go any further in this journey, journey, before we switch to part two of Exodus, I need to remind you of this because Exodus 20 and on will not make sense unless you remember what has happened in Exodus 1 through 19 which I think that begs the question of each one of us and of you this morning, what has God done for you that he wants you to remember today? Because we cannot go any further before we stop and reflect on just that. I want to give you a moment to think about what has God done for you that he wants to remind you of today. What is that truth? It's as if God then says, okay, now that I've had an opportunity to remind you of what I've done for you. Here is what I'm asking of you. And then for the rest of Exodus 20, as we read a moment ago, he lays out the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, his law to his people. This is how he reveals it to his people. It it is this well-known set of commandments that, that have been guides for living, that have formed ethical boundaries and standards 
for time and time that have been passed on for generations to generation. We had an opportunity to recite it a moment ago together. You heard it as I read it out loud in the reading of Exodus earlier in our time together, but I want to put it up there one more time for us to look at. That this is how God reveals himself to us through his law. This is what it says. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image or an idol in the form of anything. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. It says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, belongings, etc. This is the law that God gives to his people. So I want to spend a moment just thinking about then together what that law that God gives to his people has to do with us today as followers of Jesus in 21st century America. And here's what I would say to that. The first thing that I would say to that is that God's law means for us exactly what it says. That this is exactly what he means for us to live into. How he means for us to abide and live according to. This is not a set of laws that was set for us as though it was only beholden to people a long time ago in their particular context and culture. No, this is God's law that is meant to be lived into for all of his people for all of time. And so then we can begin to infer then that, that part of what God intends for us to receive in this law is just that, to follow what's listed in those Ten Commandments. Period. But I think there's another thing that God's getting at here. Something that's even more at a broader level than, than the, the specific Ten Commandments that he offers. You see, what I, what I think he's getting at here is that these laws, they, they fall into two categories. That, that they have two categories in which they reside that help us maybe summarize what it is that they mean. You see, the first category of the Ten Commandments is commandments one through four. That they all have something to do with, with loving the Lord your God with all of your heart. They're sort of the practical ways for how it looks for us to love God with all of our being. And then the second group of commandments, commandments five through ten, seem to be very interested in the concept of loving others as ourselves. They're, they're sort of the practical implications and manifestations of how we, in some ways, love our neighbor as ourself. That this is also what God is getting at in this law. Loving God with all of your being and loving your neighbor as yourself. And I see this in the Ten Commandments, but I did not make this up. Jesus himself says it in Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 36. Someone comes to him and asks him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, Jesus says. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he concludes, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What the Ten Commandments is not, what the law of God is not, is a checklist box of things that we are to then figure out and use to assess whether or not we are truly good enough. You see, sometimes if you're like me, it's our tendency to read the law of God as he reveals to us, to us in his scripture and to imagine God as this sort of angry or, or, or bitter principle that is following us around, around with this clipboard checking yes when we do things correctly, marking a big, big red X when we do not do things correctly, all the while being grumpily postured toward us as though we will never get it right. But that is not what the law is. And that is not what it means for us. You see, the law, on the other hand, as it's revealed in both the Old and the New Testament, is God's vision for his goodness being lived out in this world. It is God's vision for what it looks like for you and for me to live in step with the kingdom realities that he has set forth in this world. That is the purpose of the law. A commentator recently observed that, that, if you, that he thinks that the Old Testament authors, the writers of the Old Testament, would have seen the law and the Ten Commandments as the key moral reality that binds together God and humanity. The key moral reality that binds together God and humanity, loving God with all of our being and loving neighbor as ourself that this is what the law is getting at. This is what God is attempting to posture to us in a way that compels us to live into for his vision of a kingdom-centered life. So this is what we see in Exodus 20. That God is, knows that we are forgetful people and he's interested in reminding us of what he has done for us first and foremost. And then once he has reminded us of the incredible things he has done for us, he then transitions to asking something of us by giving us his law, by giving us the Ten Commandments. That's the message of Exodus 20. As I was reading it, I couldn't help but observe something about these Ten Commandments and the law that God gives us, both in the Old and New Testament. And what I couldn't help but observe is that the law that God gives us doesn't exactly compel us forth or call us into living in a way that's necessarily very grand. It, it doesn't seem to have much, if anything, to do with living a life that has tons of status or, or massive influence or great popularity, or, or crazy large impact. I don't see that in any of the law that God gives us. In fact, 
if you read the law and you sit with it, it, it almost seems like it's sort of just the opposite. That the law and the way it asks us to follow him speaks to very normal things, to very normal people, to people who go about their daily life feeling called to love God and love others, that that is who the law is intended for. That it's meant for you and for me in our daily activities. Professor at Fuller Seminary and theologian David O. Taylor was reflecting on this recently, and he, he says it this way. He says, I'm reminding myself today that it's okay to be uninteresting, unexciting, and unremarkable, and instead to simply be a human who loves his wife in practical ways, makes lunches for the kids, files folders, grades papers, puts laundry away, and that this too is God-blessed stuff. That's the point of the law. It's given to you and to me as a vision for living out our normal everyday life in a way that radically shines the love of Jesus. That's what the law summarized is. It's made for people who do lots of laundry and cook lots of meals and go to the grocery store and go to work every day and spend time with their family and watch the news and mow the lawn and everything else that has to do with normal, ordinary life. That is who the law is meant for. And that is where us following the law and living out this commandment has the most importance. The author Shannon Martin and Christian writer was reflecting on some of this idea recently and she wrote this. She said, culture changes when a small group of people find a better way to live, and other people begin to copy them. Culture changes when a small group of people find a better way to live, and other people copy them. The law of God, as it is revealed to us in the Old and the New Testament, friends, is a better way to live. And you know what happens when you and I begin to live according to this vision that God has given us in our normal, ordinary, everyday life is that people begin to take notice. And then they begin to follow along. And then wouldn't you know it, all of a sudden the world starts to look a little bit different. That's the call of God's people in our world. And I close with this, the very best news in all of this. The reality is that you and me and everybody else in this room and everybody else who's ever lived outside of Jesus Christ himself, we will fail miserably to uphold this law. 
we will be a forgetful people who miserably fail to love God with all of our being and love each other as ourselves. But here is the greatest news in the history of the world. That we do not receive the punishment that we deserve for our failure to live according to this law. That Jesus himself on the cross at Calvary paid that on our behalf so that you and me could live into this vision that God gives us in this law without fear or shame or guilt, knowing that we will fail to do it perfectly, but that God's grace covers us every single second. This is the good news of the message of Jesus Christ. Amen.